Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. Been very encouraged and uplifted already by the songs that we've sang. I just want to, uh, for for a moment, express my appreciation to to you all uh, as as brethren and the encouragement um, that I know I receive from from being here together with you, as well as our visitors. We're very thankful for you being here as well. We invite everyone to open your Bibles to Luke chapter four if uh, they're not already open there. We're going to be uh, basing our our uh, lesson today and actually our, our lessons for uh, a few weeks or, or months to come in this passage here in Luke chapter 4, in this uh, passage that Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61 to define his ministry, to define his, his mission. I want us to start by considering this afternoon, what is the gospel? What is the message of Jesus Christ all about? Uh, What is the work that he came to accomplish? What is the mission, by extension, that we as his church, his body, should be involved in? What exactly is the message we should be communicating to the world around us? And as foundational as those questions are, I'm afraid that they're not as universally understood or accepted as we might like to think, even uh, among ourselves, among our own brethren. It can be easy to lose focus and develop a skewed perspective of what the gospel is or what Christianity is intended to be. To some, the gospel becomes a message of health, Uh, wealth, prosperity, and personal fulfillment. Others may preach a social or humanitarian gospel that's focused simply on making this world a better place. Some see the gospel as simply uh, a sideshow to entertainment and emotional hype. For others, the gospel may become primarily a code of ethics governing the righteous or holy life. And still some may simply see the gospel as a doctrinal dogma, most useful for intellectual debate, uh, not necessarily for daily living. All of those descriptions may be perspectives that people who claim to be Christians hold or, or that they even go to the Bible to support. But none of those descriptions truly are the message of Jesus Christ. They're not the gospel that Jesus preached or the focus that Jesus had when he came to earth. So I want to start a series of studies today focusing on the mission, ministry, and message of Jesus Christ. And we're going to let Jesus himself define what his mission and his ministry is in his own words. And the words of Isaiah as well, the words that Jesus quotes here in Luke chapter 4 at the very beginning of his ministry. Uh, We read here, as Jesus enters the synagogue of Nazareth, he opens the scroll of Isaiah to what we know as Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. And he uh, reads these words, verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. I want us to take some time to to go through this passage phrase by phrase and look at how each of these phrases um, apply 
to the message of Jesus Christ and the spiritual truths behind these words. We're not just talking about Jesus physically healing blind people. We're not talking about him leading some slave rebellion and and getting people out of oppression or captivity in a physical sense. All of these things have spiritual truths and apply to the gospel of salvation. And so for today, I, I want us to start by focusing on this first phrase, good news to the poor or the gospel to the poor or afflicted. And as we consider each of these phrases that Jesus refers to here, uh, I want us to ask two questions. Number one, what can Jesus do for me? What is the gospel intended to accomplish in my own life personally? And two, what can Jesus do for my neighbor? What am I communicating to those around me um, when I present the gospel to them? So first of all, the good news or the gospel to the poor. The message of Jesus is a message of good news. The word gospel appears nearly a hundred times in our New Testament, uh, but really uh, the word gospel is kind of a made-up word. It uh, arose within Christianity uh, historically. Uh, it, it really has no real secular history or meaning prior to its reference to the message of Jesus. And so if we were actually going to translate this Greek word, uh, we might translate it good news. And to us today, good news might sound kind of like an oxymoron uh, or a contradictory statement. When we think about news today, if you turn on the TV, if if you turn on your radio, look at your newspaper, uh, we're accustomed to seeing uh, bad news. We hear about shootings, terrorist threats, political corruption, protests, criminal activity. But I want you to try to envision for a moment the concept of good news. Uh, In a historical sense, uh, when I think about the idea of good news, I think about something like VJ Day back in 1945 when it was finally announced that World War II was coming to an end, that family members were coming home, this this conflict that had gone on for over half a decade with so many lives lost was finally coming to an end. And there was rejoicing in the streets. Spontaneously, people were celebrating. And that, to me, is is one picture that that I can think of when I think of, of good news in a a historical sense. Or maybe we might think of uh, the tearing down of the Berlin Wall in 1989, something that some people here might have actually been alive for, and in contrast to VJ Day. Um, And, you know, when 28 years of, of division and repression ended, when this wall fell and families were reunited and people gathered together uh, to, to tear down this wall, to take apart th- this barrier, um, this, this symbol of, of, of tyranny. And so uh, you think about the, the rejoicing of an event like that. And so when we think about the gospel, when we think about the message that we're proclaiming to people around us, do we see it in this light? Do we see it as something that is worthy of global rejoicing? Something that, that is worthy of, of, of shouting off the rooftops, celebration in the streets. Is that how we communicate the gospel to people around us? 
First and foremost, the message of Jesus Christ is a message of good news, the greatest news that the world has ever seen. And we need to make sure that that is the way we're presenting it to the world around us. When we look at Jesus and what he had to say about his ministry, we see that his message was not primarily a message of judgment. Now, let me be clear here. I'm not saying that this should exclude the preaching of judgment. In fact, we see that Jesus spoke more about hell than any voice in the entire uh, in the entire Bible. And so it's not that Jesus excluded judgment in his preaching, and I'm not suggesting uh, by, by in any sense that we should do uh, the same, but we see that Jesus clearly says that his message is not primarily a message of judgment. It's not like Noah uh, in the days preceding the flood, who is referred to as a preacher of, of righteousness, who warned the people about this judgment to come, this flood. Uh, it's not primarily like somebody like Jonah, who went throughout the streets of Nineveh and said, yet 40 days and the city is going to be overthrown. Those are messages that were primarily focusing on God's judgment upon sin. Jesus' message is primarily good news. He didn't proclaim, repent for the day of judgment is upon you. He proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so when we present the gospel, we need to consider it in that light as well. Turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're very familiar with this passage, especially verse 16. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But sometimes we may not be as familiar with the context of this statement. I'm going to start in verse 14 together. John 3 verse 14 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In the context here, um, we see that this entire discourse uh, is, is to some extent explaining the illustration of verse 14. In verse 14, Jesus here refers to himself uh, as, as a, a parallel to the serpent, the bronze serpent that Moses raised in the wilderness. You remember when they were undergoing this plague of fiery serpents and and people were dying right and left because uh, of these serpent bites that God gave Moses this emblem of salvation. This serpent that he could raise that when someone looked on it, they could be delivered from this, this plague that they were undergoing. And in the same sense... Jesus is shown forth as an emblem of salvation. That just as God gave Moses that bronze servant, God has given us his son. And so when we get down to verse uh, 17, um, or rather 18, notice it says, uh, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. The fact is, 
when Jesus came into the world, the, the world didn't primarily need a message of judgment. Judgment was already there. Uh, the, the law had already judged them, had shown them their sin. Uh, we can look throughout the Old Testament and see uh, preachers talking about, uh, and prophets talking about the, the sin of Israel and the need for repentance. When Jesus came along, he came into a situation uh, in which people were already plagued by sin and they were in need of a cure. Jesus did not come as an angel of death. He came as a fountain of life. He didn't come to announce the plague. He came to announce the cure. In that sense, Jesus is the great physician. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, referring to himself as the good shepherd, Jesus says, the thief comes in only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The sheep were already distressed and dispirited. The sheep were already scattered. They were already torn apart and and thrown aside. And Jesus came as the good shepherd to restore them, to rescue them. And so we can say again in John 12, verse 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And so how should this affect the way we communicate the gospel to the lost? When we communicate the gospel, is it primarily a message of judgment? Or is it a message of salvation from judgment? Uh, I think this means that we need to lead with love and with hope. We need to reach out to the spiritually poor, the spiritually broken, the spiritually blind and captive with a message of great joy and deliverance. My primary message isn't condemnation, isn't warning or judgment, but ultimately uh, is a gracious invitation to life. Notice what Paul says about how we should relate to the world as Christians. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting verse 9, here Paul is talking about the need for church discipline, for judgment uh, among uh, our own midst, among the local church. So he starts, uh, we'll we'll start reading here in verse 9. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a viler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Here Paul says that among our own brethren, we have a responsibility to exercise a certain type of judgment, of, of discipline, of keeping one another accountable. But he feels that it's important here to make a distinction. To say, when I was saying don't associate with these people, I wasn't saying about people of the world. I was talking about your own brethren. When it comes to people of the world, he says it's not our job to judge the people of the world. God will judge them. Uh, And so my responsibility is is not to distance myself from the immoral, from the the pagan, from the uh, uh, idolater, or the reviler, or the drunkard, or the swindler. 
My responsibility as Jesus is to reach out to those individuals, to draw them near. And so we need to make sure that as we approach those type of people, as we uh, approach the world around us, we are not sending forth a message of judgment. We are sending forth a message of salvation. Jesus did not push away sinners. He drew them in so that they could experience the transforming power of the gospel. He was a friend to tax collectors and sinners, and we need to be the same. But also, as we think about the gospel being a message of good news, we need to realize Jesus' primary message was not law. The cure of the great physician was not better law-keeping, not a better standard of doctrine or code of ethics to live by. Certainly, the new covenant is not devoid of law. Um, The New Testament talks about the law of Christ, the law of the spirit of life, the law of liberty, a law written on our hearts. So it's not that we're we're just free from any regulations uh, in, in obedience to God now. That's not what we're saying at all. But we cannot attain justification by better obedience to a better law. That wasn't what Jesus came to bring. Jesus came with a message of grace, atonement, and redemption. John chapter 1 and verse 17 makes a contrast here between the old law and the message of Jesus. It says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. We see this type of contrast made throughout the New Testament. Jesus did not simply institute a better law, but a means of deliverance from the condemnation of the law. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we'll start here in verse 20. Verse 20 we read, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justification does not come through any system of, of law. It's not accomplished through our own obedience. Righteousness and justification uh, that God has to offer is manifested apart from the law in verse 21. And so we're not saying that it doesn't require a response, that it doesn't require obedient faith on our part. Yet, it's not based upon our obedience. It cannot be achieved through law-keeping. Justification can only be accomplished by God's grace. And so we see Paul saying a very similar thing in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. And when he gets all the way to verse 21, he says, If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If Jesus just came to, to give us a better law, and to encourage us to uh, better law-keeping, then the cross would have been pointless. The message of the cross is a message of grace, of of redemption, 
of justification through Jesus' blood. Jesus didn't come to give us a, a better law code, a better standard of ethics, a better body of doctrine. Um, his death on the cross came to, to bring us atonement, redemption, and reconciliation. So how should this affect the way that we present the gospel? We need to be careful that we're not simply looking for good moral people out there who would make really good Christians. Uh, that's not what the message of the gospel is about. We're not just looking for people who need a little bit of, of doctrinal I- instruction um, so that they can continue on with their good moral lives in service to God. Jesus looked for tax collectors and sinners whose lives could be transformed by the power of God's grace. We are not primarily converting people to a a body of religious tradition or doctrine, but we are converting them to a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. And so while Jesus certainly uh, gave us law, a law written on our hearts, a a law of the spirit of life, um, he didn't come to simply deliver a a new code of ethics to us. He came, ultimately, to preach a message of salvation. That is the good news that Jesus has brought to us. Deliverance from the plague of sin. Jesus is referred to as the great physician, not because he healed the physically lame, or the sick, or the blind, but because he provided a cure for the spiritual disease of sin. He is the light, not because he healed the physically blind, but because he healed the spiritually blind. He is life because he healed the spiritually dead. He is redemption and freedom because he released the spiritually captive. Matthew chapter 9, we see the Pharisees approaching Jesus about eating with tax collectors and sinners. And notice what Jesus responds to them in verses 12 and 13. It says, But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus didn't come to earth in search of good moral people. <laughs> He didn't search out people with good reputations, with their lives all in order, who could be some sort of asset to his kingdom. He came in search of tax collectors and sinners, those who were sin-sick and weary. That's why in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus can say that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He ultimately wasn't interested in what man had to offer him. He was interested in what he had to offer man. Matthew 20 and verse 28, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As we read in Matthew chapter 9, he says, Go and learn what this means. I do not desire sacrifice, but compassion. Um, Jesus wasn't interested. He didn't want uh, homage from man. He wanted their hearts. He didn't want man's service simply. He wanted uh, man's salvation. And so 
It's not that Jesus was just gathering together, uh, you know, good moral people to join his kingdom. He was reaching to to, uh, tax collectors and sinners that he might transform their lives through the power of his redemption. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul summarizes the gospel when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. That is what the gospel is. Um, that is the definition of the gospel, the good news of salvation from sin by the grace and the power of God. So we need to make sure that we're not undermining Jesus' teaching about judgment, and that we're not undermining the importance of obedience. But when we reach out to the world around us, we need to make sure what we are leading with, what we are emphasizing, what we are focusing on, is the message of salvation. Reaching out to a lost world with the power of Jesus to save, the hope of eternal life made available to us by God's grace. But here in the words of Isaiah 61, it says this is a message of good news for the poor. What are we talking about here? Uh, Thayer defines this word, he says, it comes from a word that means to be thoroughly frightened, to cower down or hide oneself for fear, hence one who slinks or crouches, often involving the idea of roving about in wretchedness. Um, Somebody that is destitute of wealth, influence, position, or honors, lowly and afflicted. Isaiah 61, the New American Standard, translates the Hebrew word uh, afflicted here. One who is depressed in mind or circumstances. We're not just talking about the physically poor. It's not that the message of Jesus is just appealing to one segment of society here. Um, What we're talking about is those who are in the condition of spiritual poverty. We are talking about those who recognize their destitute need for salvation. And so while I said our primary message is one of salvation, if we are going to appreciate the message of salvation, We are going to have to help people recognize their need for salvation. Before we will receive the gospel, we must recognize our destitute need. The message that Jesus saves doesn't mean anything if I don't know what I need to be saved from. And so certainly our message needs to include that uh, idea of, of spiritual poverty, the teaching about sin and our need for the great physician. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, what we often call the Beatitudes here, who does Jesus call blessed? Look at verse 3 through 6. It says, Blessed are the poor, our same word here, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know, th- this list of those who are blessed is kind of counterintuitive. Normally we think, well, th- the poor, they're not blessed. The rich, they've been blessed by God with all the things that they have. The, the, those who mourn, they're not the blessed. Those who are joyous are blessed. Not the, the meek and lowly, but the powerful. Not the hungry, but the nourished. And the provided for, th- those are the ones that are blessed. Jesus turns it upside down. He says, those who are blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? Because they will be filled. 
Because they will inherit the eternal riches of the kingdom. Because those who mourn are going to be comforted. Because those who recognize their need are going to receive what Jesus has to provide. Their hearts are prepared to receive the good news of salvation. These are people that the gospel will appeal to. In Matthew 9, when Jesus said that he came to call not the righteous, but sinners, it's not that he's saying that he he came to call one segment of society. You know, Pharisees, I, I, I didn't come for you, I came for these other people. No, what it comes down to is that all of us are the poor. And the only question is whether or not we're going to realize that. Whether or not we're going to realize our own spiritual poverty. The gospel is not uh, good news to the poor because it only has something to offer one segment of society. Uh, The fact is we are all spiritually poor, wretched, blind, and naked. Turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9 through 12. Here, Paul, in preparing uh, the hearts of his readers for the news of salvation in Jesus, spends the first part of the book of Romans helping us understand the condition that we're in. And here in Romans chapter 3, he describes mankind from God's perspective. Starting in verse 9, he says, What then? Are we any better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. That's not usually how we'd like to describe ourselves, is it? (laughs) You know, when we compare ourselves with other people, and when our standard is an earthly standard, we think, well, I'm I'm a pretty good person. I do a lot of good things. But from God's standard, and from his perspective, he looks down upon the earth and he says, there is not a single one who does good. We have all fallen short of his glory. We have all violated his standard. And we need to be able to see ourselves in that light. Later on in chapter 5, as he describes the grace of God through Jesus, he talks about how Christ died for us when we were helpless, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, when we were enemies of God. Although our primary message in proclaiming the gospel is a message of salvation and not judgment, salvation will have no significance unless we first understand what we need to be saved from. And this is why Jesus talked so much about hell within the Scriptures. Because in the very breath that he talked about eternal judgment, he was able to announce eternal life. And so, yes, we need to talk about eternal punishment. We need to talk about sin. We need to talk about the consequences of sin. But as a means to an end, so that we can proclaim the salvation and the cure that Jesus provides. We need to help people recognize their desperate need for salvation because you can't uh, sell a solution to a problem that people don't think they have. And so as we look through the scripture, we do see uh, that the apostles did convict people of sin. You look in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. How did Peter conclude 
his sermon. Normally we think of uh, verse 38 when he proclaims the remission of sins through repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus. And yet, to some extent, that, that was the addendum to his sermon. That was after the people reacted to what he had to say. His, his conclusion, to some extent, uh, can be found in verse 37 when he says, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then when the people were cut to the heart, when they cried out, what shall we do? Their hearts were prepared for the good news of salvation in Jesus. And so as we proclaim the gospel, uh, we need to make sure that we are not uh, proclaiming a, a solution to a problem that people don't think they have. We do need to help people see their spiritual poverty. Because the gospel is not for good people. It is for bad people who want to become good. Remember Luke chapter 18, the parable of the tax collector and sinner? If you want to turn your Bibles over there for just a moment. Here it says that Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And as we see these two men praying, the Pharisee and the tax collector, what, what does the Pharisee say? He's speaking uh, to himself, it says. And he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Instead of thanking God that he wasn't like these other people, I think what the Pharisee needed to do was pray to God that he could make him like these other people. That he could have such a heart as the tax collector, as the adulterer, the contrite and broken heart who recognized his need for God. Let's not thank God that we're not like those people. Let's recognize that we are those people. That we are in desperate need of his salvation. Let's be like that tax collector who beat his breast before God, was not willing to look up, but begged, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Have you ever heard someone say, uh, in, in, in talking about evangelism and, and, and working with other people, uh, you know, so-and-so would make such a good Christian. He's such a, a moral, upright individual. Uh, you know, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, he, he is a good father, he's a good family man, he's very generous, he has a heart of gold. If, if only he'd become a Christian, he'd make such a good Christian. Rather than, I tell you what, somebody like that would probably make a lousy Christian <laughs> unless they can recognize their destitute need for salvation. We're not looking for people who, who have something to offer the kingdom. We're looking for people who are open to what God has to offer. And open to the transforming power of the gospel. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here, Paul urges the brethren to consider their calling. In verse 26. It says, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. 
This is what it means for the gospel to be good news to the poor. Not to uh, the the wise and the mighty and and the great who have something uh, to offer. God didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom. And so, here we see that God is not an antique collector looking for the the best people to, to put into his collection. God is a potter who is looking for marred vessels who are willing to be remolded, remade, and restored by his hands. James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Later on in verse 10, we see that if we want to draw near to God, we need to be miserable and mourn and weep. Let our laughter be turned to mourning, our joy to gloom. Humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will lift us up. That is the picture of conversion. That is the picture of the gospel and what it is intended to do within us. We need to make sure that as we proclaim the message of the gospel, we are proclaiming a message of salvation to those who are poor in spirit, to those who are sin-sick and weary, that we are reaching out to tax collectors and sinners, and more than that, that we see ourselves in that light. So what about you this afternoon? Brethren, if you were baptized because that's what good Christian people do, then I'm afraid to say you probably haven't ever been converted to Christ. Baptism is not for good people. Baptism is for bad people who want to become good. If you recognize today that you have made yourself an enemy of God, and you recognize your spiritual poverty, your brokenness, that you have been afflicted by the plague of sin, God has provided a solution through Jesus Christ. He is the the serpent in the wilderness that we can look to to heal us of the, the poison of guilt and sin. Are you willing to respond to the good news of salvation today? Are you willing to admit your poverty and come to God to receive the riches of his grace? Let's take these things to heart in our own lives and also as we proclaim these things to those around us. If there's anyone here this afternoon who recognizes their need for the gospel, who would like to come to Jesus for the cleansing of his grace, the redemption of his blood. We want to help you in any way that we can. Please let us know at this time.